This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here along with you. Clostridium difficile, also known as C. diff, is a very serious infection, and the incidence of it is on the rise throughout the world. The Centers for Disease Control reports that approximately 347,000 people in the United States alone were diagnosed with this infection in 2012, and of those, at least 14,000 died. And some estimates place that number as even higher, depending on how the numbers are reported. But now, there is an ancient technique for fighting this virulent infection. And here to tell us more about it is Dr. David Heisig, Clinical Professor of Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Heisig. Thanks for coming in. Good morning, Linda. Thanks for having me. So C. difficile is a real problem in this country and worldwide. Tell us exactly what it is and why has it become a greater threat? Well, that's a great question. Clostridium difficile is a bacterium that lives in many of our guts all the time. In fact, many of us are carriers. And when our normal good bacteria are thwarted in some fashion, maybe an antibiotic, maybe a concomitant disease, the Clostridium difficile can overgrow, produce a toxin, and make us very, very sick. So it's basically part and parcel of our everyday life, but because something interferes or throws off the balance of nature, so to speak, in our gut, this thing kind of gets out of control. Right. And not in everybody. Only a minority of us are carriers, but there's enough of us around, and the potential is is great for infection. This is a spore-forming bacterium. In other words, a dirty surface days after contamination can still lead to infection in somebody who is susceptible. So what exactly are the symptoms? What, What do you expect to find in someone who's got an infection with C. diff? Well, in the olden days, when it was relatively less virulent, most people would simply have a crampy, bland, non-bloody diarrhea. They might have a low-grade fever and just not feel well. And in many cases, they would get over the infection on their own. Unfortunately, more current strains have become more virulent. People are sicker and sicker. So people have high white counts and high fevers and are very, very sick. Some are septic. Some lose their colons. They perforate. Some so require emergencies. Act- Mm-hmm. The colon actually has gets a hole in it. And exactly, exactly. Go on, and you said they have to have surgical They can have surgery, maybe even resection of the entire colon. Wow. And the patients actually, uh, in some cases, as you pointed out, die from this. So how who is most at risk for this kind of thing? You mentioned some people are not or are you know will not be uh, affected by this, but others are. Right. If you're a carrier and you are exposed to antibiotics and they kill off the so-called good bacteria, you may end up very, very sick if the Clostridium difficile rises to a point where the toxin becomes clinically apparent. Clarify this for me, though, when you say you're a carrier. At first, you said it's in most of our guts. So what separates the carriers from the rest of us? Well, it's not in most of our guts. It's in a healthy percentage of our guts. So if you have Clostridium difficile, but you're otherwise normal and healthy, you may go through your entire life never knowing about it. However, if you are exposed to an antibiotic and it kills off good bacteria, that bad bacteria, the Clostridium difficile, may grow to a point where it gets you sick. Or you may be without Clostridium difficile, but you come in contact with a dirty surface or something contaminated and exposed, you contract it, and then you get sick. And it does spread by this type of of, um, contact. Okay, that's clearer now. Um, So what are the kinds of things that might 
also add to the risk factors? In other words, something like surge could could a just a GI standard GI surgery yes. expose you that kind of yes. thing? What are some of the other things? Well, inflammatory bowel disease can certainly set you off, such as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. In fact, sometimes when we think we are dealing with an ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease flare, in fact, it's not. It's a, a uh, Clostridium difficile infection on top of the inflammatory bowel disease. And when we treat that, the patient goes back to their baseline. Gut surgery can certainly do it. Antibiotic use and even the dose, of one dose of an antibiotic can set Really? Yes. Really? Now, how is that? I mean, is it, again, a, just in someone who might either have otherwise weakened immune system or? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In fact, if you think about it, remember how over the years people would always get an antibiotic before their dentist's appointment or an antibiotic before orthopedic surgery and so forth and so on? And we've cut way back on that because we've realized that the risk of the surgery of the dental uh, procedure is a lot less than the risk for antibiotic-related diarrhea or clostridium difficile. So we've cut back on that. And one of the big uh, things we're trying to do is cut back on the use of antibiotics when they're not necessary. In general, I know that's been right. true, especially in the pediatric population. Because, For everybody. Right. So that, because I guess more virulent strains are developing in yes. response to all of the use, and then... And more resistant strains. Resistant. Was exactly. The word. Well, both. You have more virulent strains that are making you sicker, and you have more resistance. So the antibiotics that were able to treat these successfully decades ago are often not working. And the, inf the antibiotics that are being used now have more side effects and are incredibly more expensive, which adds to the healthcare burden. So getting to more of the conventional treatment for something like C. difficile, what are the kinds of treatments that are being used or were being used traditionally for this? Right. Well, there's two sorts of uh, approaches. One is standard antibiotic care. And the first was metronidazole, which is brand name is Flagyl predominantly. And that generally worked very well. Now resistance is such that we're now using vancomycin, and uh, that's often called vancosin. And this drug is hundreds and hundreds of dollars compared to dollars for the metronidazole. If that doesn't work, if the uh, Clostridium difficile is um, resistant to that, there's a newer antibiotic called fidaxomycin, which is tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. So you're seeing an escalation of cost and not necessarily uh, cures from these antibiotics, plus the potential for side effects. Do they do other things as well? I read somewhere there are some ancillary treatments uh, to try to, in a sense, boost the gut flora, like you know the the bugs that are healthy within the right. gut, like the use of probiotics or the right. use of. Well, interestingly, you bring up probiotics because what fecal transplantation really is is the ultimate um, probiotic. I mean, you're basically instilling healthy stool flora back into the gut. But yes, you could use probiotics, which are available over the counter, and they may have some efficacy in the management of C. diff. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here along with Dr. David Heisek, and we're talking about C. difficile and a new use for an old medical technique. Now, just a minute ago, you mentioned fecal transplant. We hadn't mentioned that yet. And that is exactly what we've been kind of alluding to by saying an ancient treatment. Tell us about this. What exactly is it? As you said, it's it's being used currently or started to be used again. What exactly is it and what's the concept behind it? Well, it's been recognized that there's supposed to be good and potentially bad flora in the gut. And you don't want the bad flora, you want the good. So what you're trying to do is find a healthy person whose stool is presumably healthy and balanced, and taking that stool and instilling it in the sick patient 
hoping to restore the normal flora and make them well again. Now, this has a long history from what little bit of research I did. Tell us a little bit about some of this. Well, this goes back centuries, in fact, millennia. And in the Far East, it was known as yellow soup. And practitioners would uh, take stool from healthy donors, make it into a slurry, and have their patients drink it. Now, obviously, they didn't know about Clostridium difficile, and they didn't know what they were treating, and maybe it worked and maybe it didn't. But this uh, theory has been used for a long time. It's been used in farming, in agriculture, uh, with animals and so forth to restore uh, gut flora appropriately in cattle, for example. And in the United States, it's been used at least since the 50s uh, to treat a variety of illnesses. But the current um, data suggests that its real efficacy is in refractory, difficult-to-manage Clostridium difficile. Right. But in this case, these days, we're not drinking it, so right. to speak. We are which not. sounds repugnant, I'm sure, to most people at the and thought. And it should. Of, it yes. should. But in fact, you have a different methodology for insti instilling or for treating. Tell us about what you guys do. Right. Pretty much most people will take the stool... It's in slurry form so that it's, it's liquefied. It's been strained, so any solid material has been removed. And then it's instilled via colonoscopy. And we know about colonoscopy. That's the ugly test that everybody gets at 50 to rule out colon cancer. And the patient undergoes colonoscopy. And then once the colonoscope has been placed as far up as it can go, maybe the cecum, uh, about 250 cc's of this stool slurry has been instilled. And then the colonoscope is withdrawn and the uh, liquid is allowed to trickle out and repopulate the colon with healthy bacteria. And has this been successful or effective in, in terms of <clears throat> restoring the normal flora? flora and and, and it what, has. what is the efficacy? It, it has. Um, we do not have double-blind placebo-controlled trials that are going to show that this works. Most of this data is anecdotal, and it is difficult to do uh, double-blind placebo-control because you're not going to be having a sham colonoscopy versus a real colonoscopy. But in most cases, it does work. In fact, it's working well enough that many scientific uh, institutions uh, and peer-related uh, um, articles are demonstrating that it does work, and it's becoming one of the mainstays for managing difficult uh, C. diff. Is there anything um, difficult about the procedure itself, or is it just, as you said, the standard colonoscopy? Is there anything that places someone at risk by undergoing this kind of procedure? Well, of course, there's two things. One, the colonoscopy could be done while the patient's sick. And if you have a diseased colon and you're doing a colonoscopy, you do have a higher risk for potential complications such as a perforation during the colonoscopy. The other thing that's very important to rec recognize is that the stool that's being used has to be very, very carefully screened for all sorts of infections that could be potentially transmitted by the stool. You don't want to use just any stool. It has to be from somebody who's very, very carefully screened. So the whole idea of the donor is crucial here. But are, are there issues in terms of any kind of matching of a donor? I mean, I know with <clears throat> certain types of donor situations, the person has to be typed and matched very carefully to the patient. That's not necessarily the case here? No, it's not, but you bring up a very interesting point. For example, um, you don't want somebody who has eaten a lot of peanuts to be donating stool to someone who has a peanut allergy, for example. But the most important thing is that the stool is screened for all of the potential infections that we're aware of that could be transmitted from stool, uh, and that is critical. So HIV, hepatitis A, B, and C, 
um, toxoplasmosis, cryptosporidiosis, various basic bacterial infections. All of those things need to be screened, which leads us to how you get the donor. And there are basically two ways. You can find your own local donor, so you have to ask somebody if they could donate, and then you put them through a series of fairly intensive screening tests, and who's going to pay for them becomes an issue because the donor themselves, they're not a patient, so their insurance is really going to pick that up. The other concept is commercially available stool, and that's available, for example, from Open Biome in Massachusetts, and that stool is already screened, already slurried, already um, strained and so forth, and sent to you frozen so that your facility can store it frozen and then thaw it when it's time to use it. Again, g getting back to the payment factor or the cost of this, is this usually covered under someone's insurance? Probably the not patient? yet. The colonoscopy part can be, but I would imagine many insurance companies are still going to call this experimental, although some are buying into it, recognizing that this may cost them a couple thousand dollars versus $20,000 for one course of fidaxomycin. So some insurance companies are beginning to realize that it is more cost-effective to use this therapy than some of the more traditional antibiotic therapies. And things I've read is that some, some have estimated it to be well over 90% effective. Yes. From, from yes. the early data that's coming right. out. So right. in the very little bit of time we have left, are there other, other diseases that can be treated with this? Well, that's a great question. And there may be, but I'm not going to list them, okay? Mm -hmm. The reason being is that the data there is so premature um, that I don't want to go on air saying, well, this could be a cure for such and such and such and such. But yes. But there is a potential there future. There is a potential future for many other diseases. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing this information with us. It's really groundbreaking in a way to take something so ancient and actually find that it has use, great usefulness in today's world. Thanks again. My guest has been Dr. David Heisek. He's a clinical professor of medicine at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.